If you're a dog lover like me and are looking to adopt or foster from a fully vetted placement organization with actual vets on the team, no pun intended, and you live in the Pacific Northwest, you need to know about Must Love Dogs Northwest. Must Love Dogs is a 501c3 nonprofit, all-volunteer organization dedicated to ending pet homelessness. They work to rehome dogs that are abused, neglected, and homeless, or about to be homeless, and those in shelter settings. Must Love Dogs offers spay-neuter services, microchip assistance, training in lieu of surrender, and provides compassion grants for those in need. So, if it's time to bring a new dog into your heart and home as a full-time family member or foster a homeless pup, or if you want to donate or support a fundraising event or volunteer, give Must Love Dogs a call at 844-364-7690. Again, that's 844-364-7690. Or visit them online at mustlovedogsnw.org. Again, that website, mustlovedogsnw.org. Hey, Drew Zagorski here. You're listening to You Don't Say. Thanks for that. And don't forget to follow and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts and share with family, friends, and everyone else you know. So, here's the story. As a kid, I always had an interest in politics. My dad and his best friend, my godfather Tony, would often lock horns and get into it. My dad was a Democrat and Tony was a Republican. There was plenty of fodder for him since this was in the days of Nixon and the Watergate mess. It turns out my best friend on the planet is Mo, Tony's son. We've never not been best friends. And in terms of our politics, neither of us fell far from the tree. Now, I admit, I don't think I've ever really identified as a Democrat or a Republican. I've always voted across lines more often than not. And over the years, I've moved from a moderately conservative space to more of a centrist and a liberal centrist space. Moe's a diehard Trump supporter, but he states he's definitely not a Republican, just a conservative. I'm not. I'm anything but. These days, Moe and I lock horns like our dads did. It gets a little dicey sometimes, I'll be honest with you. More than once, one or the other of us has called the other a fucking idiot. But we always know when to stop and step out of the sparring, and we always go back to having laughs with each other, and always back to just being us. It's a real blessing for both of us. I'm pretty sure of that. Anyway, as I started to close in on voting age, I was stoked. The first president I voted for was Ronald Reagan, and I was proud of that back then. I've not only voted in every presidential election since turning 18, but I've voted in every single election, period. And that I'm more proud of. But here's the thing. I was born into a white middle-class family. I lived in a decent neighborhood, polling places were all around us on election day, and our precinct captain always stopped by to make sure we were set to vote. Of course, he was pushing for a straight ticket vote, which in really no version of reality is that ever going to work for me, ever. The point is here that my vote was sought. It was never hard for me to vote, and my vote has never been suppressed. I've always felt like I was part of the American experience. It felt good, and it still does. However, as I matured and read more deeply into history and witnessed the reality of how things really work, I've come to understand something. That thing is that for all the good intentions, for all the platitudes, for all the beautiful prose that make up the Declaration of Independence, our nation has never really lived up to the dream. Maybe the intention to do so was never really there. A cursory look at our history sure would lend itself to that argument. I mean, 
all are equal, uh, except for these slaves who, by the way, weren't even considered full humans. Our form of government isn't perfect, which just look around, that's more than obvious right now. In fact, it's pretty flawed. And especially if you're a black or Hispanic or other person of color, you could say that it's flat out broken. And I don't think you'd be wrong. But that being said, I really truly believe it's the best form of government on the planet. And I also believe that at least until these last few years, we were making a lot of progress. And you know, I also believe in the future of our country and that it's worth stepping up for with my vote and the time it takes to read in on the issues and candidates. Fortunately, I live in a vote-by-mail state. One of the best things about that is the voter pamphlet that gets mailed with my ballot. I can do a deep dive on all of it. Now it takes me up to an hour or two sometimes to put my ballot together, but I can sit at the table and do it. That, to me, is one of the beauties of vote-by-mail. I know that in vote-in-person states, this read-in is far more challenging, and maybe that's by design. So here we are, tomorrow's election day. I wanted to share a little bit about the vote and how we came to our vote being our right. It wasn't always the case. I recently watched the Netflix documentary, Whose Vote Counts Explained. It's a pretty quick watch, three 25-minute episodes. The first episode really struck me more than the others, though all three are pretty damn compelling. Anyway, today's podcast is my distillation of that first episode with a good bit more information to it. I hope you'll give that documentary a look, and I hope that the info I'm sharing on today's podcast will be useful for you and provide some perspective and insight into your own situation. I hope more than anything else, you'll become an engaged voter, whoever you might support. As of the publishing of this podcast, there have been 70 to 80 million early in-person and mail-in ballots received. That's a little more than half the total vote cast in 2016. So let's see if we can blow 2016's vote total out of the water. Please get out there and vote. So here comes the rundown. Our declaration states, We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yet to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, there we go again, men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Read the voters. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. But wait a friggin' minute. How can that be when after declaring independence and equality, then fighting a bloody war for it, the founders got back together and wrote a constitution to outline how the experiment would work, which doesn't include much of that equality they declared for. You see, after all, they didn't really intend for all men, let alone all people, to be, well, very much equal. Many, well, most of the founders were slaveholders, so there's that. So they wanted people, well, men specifically, but, but only men who were property to be able to cast ballots in elections. 
In the original Constitution, if you give that original document its Bill of Rights a read, guess how much addresses the voting rights? Go ahead, guess. I'll wait. If you guess none, you win the chicken dinner. The right to vote was left to the individual states. Anyway, on September 18, 1787, the Constitution was ratified. And it took another 80 years for black men to win the right to vote. And only after a staggering cost of blood and treasury and a brutal civil war. And these black men, by the way, weren't even considered citizens, let alone fully human, until the 14th Amendment passed in 1868, which is which is just crazy because most of them had deeper roots in America than their slave masters. Then on February 26, 1869, the 15th Amendment passed, which stated, The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. So great, we got that fixed. Not. Unfortunately, all over the country, states and local governments got really creative in terms of suppressing the black vote. There were poll taxes assessed. Oftentimes, blacks couldn't afford them. There were literacy tests with questions like, how high is up? Which actually began in the North with the intent to disqualify non-English speaking immigrants. Individuals who were convicted of felonies and served their time and made their restitution and reformed themselves, well, they're out too. But hey, we can find some comfort in knowing that if he lived back then, at least Lee Greenwood would be free to vote at a convenient location without any hassles. Now, jump about 130 years ahead of the Constitution, and on August 18, 1920, the 19th Amendment is passed, giving suffrage to women. But hold on, black women were still subjected to all those same suppression tactics that black men faced. So only kind of were they afforded the right to vote. Now, to put that equality into some type of frame, consider the fact that during the first part of America's history, women couldn't even own property and weren't allowed to control any of the money they earned. So there's that bullshit happening too. And also, when we hear stories about the women's suffrage movement, we get the impression that it was a kumbaya thing with all women banding together to fight the good fight. Well, there's a bit of a reality check on that too. Two of the movement's leaders, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony of Silver Dollar fame, were actually pretty fiercely against black women getting the vote before white women. Just another spoonful of that systemic racism that doesn't exist. Now, up to this point, I haven't even mentioned Native Americans. It seems to be another sad undertone in America's history of freedom. They're more often than not an afterthought. Well, on June 2nd, 1924, the Native American Citizenship Act was enacted. That granted citizenship to all Native Americans born in the United States, but the right to vote for them was still the call of the states. Utah was the final state to guarantee them the right to vote in 1962. But yeah, there was still that tool of snaky politicians and bigots out there. Suppression. Time for a break. We'll be back with more of our conversation right after this. Drew Zagorski here. Looking for a home loan? There's only one name you need to know. Teresa Springer of Movement Mortgage. 
Teresa brings decades of experience in lending, so she and her dedicated team will get you the right loan for your specific needs and probably save you a bundle of time and money in the process. How do I know? She's been my mortgage maven for years. So, no matter where you live, if you're looking for a home loan, call Teresa Springer and the Mavens at Movement Mortgage at 360-798-4161. Or get the ball rolling by going to TeresaSpringer.com forward slash you don't say and clicking on the yellow get started button. Again, that number is 360-798-4161. 4161 and the website is teresaspringer.com forward slash you don't say. Phonetically, that's there's a springer.com forward slash you don't say. Teresa Springer, NMLS 70667. Movement Mortgage LLC supports equal housing opportunity. NMLS ID 39179. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Movement Mortgage LLC is licensed by California Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act, number 4131054, Oregon ML 5081, Washington CL-39179. Interest rates and products are subject to change without notice and may or may not be available at the time of the loan commitment or lock-in. Borrowers must qualify for all benefits. Movement Mortgage is a registered trademark of the Movement Mortgage LLC, a Delaware limited liability company. Phew! In 1964, poll taxes were finally outlawed. Then, in 1965, the Voting Rights Act was passed. The act banned all that suppression and required states to justify their specific voting hurdles. They needed to get federal preclearance for them, and that seemed to work pretty well. Then finally, in March of 1971, the 26th Amendment was enacted, which lowered the voting age to 18. We're in great shape, right? Everyone who's over 18 can vote. Not so fast. You see... The Voting Rights Act had a flaw. It had an expiration date on it, so the act had to be reauthorized by the Senate. And it was reauthorized over and over and over and over until until we elected Barack Obama. Then, all of a sudden, politicians of a certain stripe decided that things needed to change. They marched the case all the way to the Supreme Court. So we dodged that bullet. I mean, how could the Supreme Court rule against ensuring fair voting practices? I mean, this is America, land of the free and all that, right? Well, in June of 2013, the Supreme Court struck down the Voting Rights Act, stating the areas covered by the Voting Rights Act have changed, but the law hasn't kept up. Whatever the hell that obfuscation is supposed to mean. And oh yeah, by the way, this was a five to four vote, you guessed it, along ideological lines. That preclearance thing that states had to do to change their voting laws was suddenly gone. In the time since, about half the states have initiated new voter restrictions. Some of these included polling places being closed, which led to long lines and long wait times, mostly in areas where people of color live. Stricter photo ID laws were rolled out, which resulted in unfair purging of voters from the rolls. Gerrymandering, which, to be honest, has been around since about 1812, but now it was on steroids, and SCOTUS recently chose to not take a stand on that, leaving it, yep, up to the states. And this year in Texas, the governor closed all but one polling place in each county. Now, I lived in Texas for several years, and I can tell you that depending on the county, you could be required to drive yourself up to about 100 miles round trip because it's unlikely that you can just get on a bus and go there just to cast your ballot. And then also this year, the current administration cut back funding on the Postal Service, resulting in the slowing of the mails, which impacts vote by mail. And that very president who did that, in his own words, stated that when voter turnout is high, his party loses elections. 
That's not fake news, folks. And these are just a few of the favorite things that vote suppressors roll out. All of these new and greatest hits of suppression tactics, or at least the vast majority of them, are couched in the fallacy that there is an epidemic, to use a timely term, of voter fraud. That it's overwhelming and people cast millions of scam votes. But the overwhelming truth is that it simply isn't. Now look, my naysaying listeners, I'm not saying election hanky-panky doesn't happen. I grew up in Chicago, home of one of the most notorious election shenanigans ever, the 1960 election of JFK. Just Google that and be sure to include the name of then-Mayor Richard J. Daley. The voting totals out of Chicago were being held back all night. Then, miraculously... When the Daily Machine knew how many votes were needed from Chicago to give this state to Kennedy, the number was magically covered. As the old saying goes in Chicago, vote early and vote often. So yeah, it happens, and it's happened throughout our history, but nowhere near the scale that the current pig pen of politicians claim it does. And the other reality, like in the JFK Daily example I mentioned, it's the politicians doing it, not the voters. In 2017, our current president hired a guy named Chris Kobach, the former Secretary of State of Kansas, to investigate the problem of non-citizens voting in the 2016 election. After all, the president claimed millions and millions of them did just that. A few months later, when Kobach came up empty in his investigation, the president pulled the plug on it. And here are some numbers to chew on when it comes to voter fraud. A study by Justin Levitt of Loyola Marymount University found only 45 credible instances of voter impersonation. And here's the punchline. That's the total number going back to the year 2000 among more than 1 billion votes cast. That's billion with a B. Another study by the Washington Post and the Electronic Registration Information Center pulled numbers from three vote-by-mail states, Washington, Oregon, and Colorado. I'm in one of those. There were only 372 cases of suspicious votes out of, wait for it, out of nearly 15 million votes in 2016 and 2018, which is only, wait for it again, 0.0025% of all those votes that were cast. So, now I come to the elephant in the room, voter turnout. It is, and it has been for decades, embarrassingly low in the United States. In recent elections, it's hovered around 55%. In 2016, it was right in that ballpark, meaning that our current president was elected by only about 23 to 25% of all registered voters. Think about that for a second. To me, that, that's simply sickening. But why, aside from these suppression tactics, which can't be underestimated, is turnout always so low? I don't know. Are we lazier than citizens of other countries? Do we just not care how our country, states, cities and towns, school boards, and other local offices are governed? In most other countries, voter registration is automatic. We have it in some states, but why not all of them? I mean, why not? When I can do a Google search for a pair of socks, then I'm besieged by sock ads everywhere I go online for the next six months. Certainly, it can't be due to any technological limitations. Now, to loop this all back around, in 2016, the highest voter turnout was almost as if the founders' original ideas had never changed. It was predominantly white, predominantly wealthy, predominantly older voters. But that's how they set it up, right? 
So yes, there is systemic suppression happening to voters of all races and backgrounds, but mostly to blacks, Hispanics, and other people in lower socioeconomic areas. But we can all get out there and vote one way or another. Voting simply can't be a last-minute afterthought. We all need to make a plan to ensure our vote is registered. And yeah, I also acknowledge that voting by itself, it isn't the answer. But it's maybe, at least in my opinion, the biggest part of it next to getting involved for ensuring that we can achieve that equality and that freedom that was promised in the Declaration of Independence. Without it and without engaging and getting involved in our communities, we're ceding our governance to anyone who seeks it, regardless of their sincerity, competence, civility, empathy and compassion, experience and stability. Or as we've witnessed recently, their lack of all those things. With the election happening tomorrow, if you live in a vote-by-mail state or have an absentee ballot somewhere else and have not mailed it in, find a way to get it to a Dropbox or election office and call your election office before you do so that you can verify where their Dropboxes are. Because we've seen in this very election reports of scam Dropboxes out there. If you don't have a mail-in ballot, Brave whatever weather you need to, mask up, social distance, and get out there and wait as long as it takes to cast your ballot. It's too important, and it may be too late for any of this to matter if you don't. This is Drew Zagorski. You've been listening to You Don't Say, Peace, and Vote. Thanks for listening. If you have a story to tell, shoot me an email to info at youdontsay.net. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at YDS Stories. Thanks again, and see you on the next episode.